begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll go down to the Catechism Bible Mary work. To bishops, pastors, and preachers, part two. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Titus 1.9. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And uh, we'll go down to Luther's uh, evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Um, we are starting a new Bible study. It's a lot of fun. And we're going to be doing the Gospel of Mark by popular request. The Gospel of Mark. Now, uh, I think to get started here, I want to say a few words just about the Gospels in general and this kind of um, genre of the, of the Scriptures. Go- gospels are really their own kind of thing. Uh, they're, not, they're not epistles. They're not prophecies. They are history to a degree, uh, but a different kind of history than Genesis. Than like say Genesis or Exodus, and uh, really the Gospels are, in some sense, primary in the church. So the way to think about this is that we have the Old Testaments, right? The the books of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms or the poetry, right? Those are the that's the main sections of the Old Testament. And all of that is driving towards Jesus Christ, right? Towards the gospel, towards the good news about Jesus Christ. Um, if, you've been, if you've been at all to the Genesis Bible study, right, what's the primary question in Genesis? Where's the seed, right? Where is Jesus Christ, right? And then um, the gospels are then, if you look at the rest of the Bible, the what what's left in the Bible for the most part it's it's epistles right it's the letters to the churches in the New Testament well what are the what are the epistles what are the letters to the churches they're basically um, sermons should have given myself more room here they're basically sermons on the gospels right and so the gospels are in this sense kind of central to the scriptures now. All scripture is God's word, right? All scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction. All scripture is profitable for comfort. But the gospels are in some sense the central scriptures, right? The Old Testament's driving to the gospels. The rest of the New Testament's looking back to the gospels and, and preaching on them. Um, and if you look at the, you can see this also in the structure of the liturgy, that in the liturgy, in a, the divine service on Sunday morning, uh, the whole Sunday is generally structured around the gospel reading, right? The epistle that's chosen is chosen because of the, the gospel reading. The Old Testament that's chosen 
is chosen because of its connection to the gospel reading. The prayer of the day normally has a connection to the gospel reading. The hymn of the day normally has a connection to the gospel reading. Um, and, and what do we do in the liturgy when we have the gospel reading? We stand up, right? We stand up to hear the gospel. We don't stand up for the Old Testament or epistle or the psalm. And so um, the gospels are have always kind of been primary in this way um, to the liturgy of the church and, and also in, kind of inherent in the scriptures themselves. All right, so that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing uh, I want to talk about with the gospels is the relationship of the four different gospels, because this is going to come up as we as we study Mark, because when we look at certain things, we're going to end up, by nature, comparing it to other things in uh, Matthew and Luke, especially. And uh, so with the gospels, right, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic Gospels, and the reason they're called the Synoptic Gospels is, uh, so syn means uh, together, right, like synthesis, and optic is eyes, right, so this is uh, with, or this is basically the word seeing together, if you will, right, or with one eye. And the reason these are called the Synoptic Gospels is because they cover basically the same content, Right, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's going to be a lot of overlap, and this is actually probably the reason that uh, one of the reasons that Mark was requested was that you don't hear a lot about Mark. Right, you hear when you've done Bible studies before. Sometimes you you get a Bible study on John, you get a Bible study on Matthew or Luke. Uh, a lot of times people don't do Bible studies on Mark, and the reason for that is because uh, 97% of Mark. The content, the stories that are told, uh, are cover is covered in Matthew and or Luke, right? And especially Matthew. Um, there's like I think it's like 94 percent of Mark is in covered in Matthew, and then like 90 percent is in is covered in Luke. So um, there's only three percent that's totally unique to Mark. 3% of the content, and, and we'll try and point those things out when they when they come. All right, but uh, that, that's why a lot of people just kind of skip over Mark because you can, in theory, kind of get the same content covering Matthew and Luke. Now, I do think that the way Mark tells some of those stories is interesting, right? Um, he does include a few things that are uh, kind of stylistically, and then his audience and the things he focuses on and the thing, way he arranges things is is interesting, Okay, um, if if you're curious about this, uh, so um, just on as far as this 97% scale, so Mark has 3%, right? That's that's unique. Uh, Matthew has I wrote these numbers down just because I thought it was kind of interesting. Matthew has about uh, 20% unique content, and Luke has about 35% unique content. Um, so. That makes for for some people that makes Matthew and Luke more more interesting. Uh, Luke, for instance, has a lot about like worship and temple and liturgy. He has he includes you know he's got this road to Emmaus thing going on. He includes a lot of kind of interesting unique stories in there. And then Matthew just in some ways is like a longer version of Mark. Um, so anyway, and then John uh, John is like. He's not included in the synoptics because his content is, in some ways, almost entirely unique. Like, there's tons of stuff in John. There's some stuff that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but most of the stuff, I don't have a percentage for you. I would say somewhere around 80 to 90% of the stuff in John is unique to John. Right? So, John has like the this farewell discourse of Jesus in the upper room that's like six chapters long. No one else has that. Right, he's got the high priestly prayer that's part of that. No one else has that. Um, he's got the Nicodemus stuff in chapter three. No one else has that. So a lot of the stuff in John, just no one else has. So he's got the whole bread of life discourse in John six. So John is very unique, and and for that reason, I think John is a lot of people's favorite gospels. Um, 
I'm kind of guilty of that. I kind of like John the best, but that's beside the point. All right, so um, when it comes to the, this discussion, uh, it's it's maybe a little bit important to know about this just in case you are doing any research online or anything. But when discussing the relationship of the synoptic gospels, uh, theologians will refer to this thing called the synoptic problem. And I think it is not really a problem and it kind of doesn't really matter that much. But um, the synoptic problem, just so you're aware, is really this question of uh, who, which of these was written first and what's what's the nature of the relationship between them, right? So there is a theory that I disagree with, but there's a theory that says, uh, well, I guess I, I don't even disagree with it. I just don't have a strong opinion, but there's a theory, for instance, that says that Mark, called it's called Mark and Priority, that Mark was written first and he's kind of the... Uh, the, the central, right, the 97%, the central text, and then Matthew takes Mark and adds to it, and Luke takes Mark and then adds to, to it his own content. Um, there's other theories like Matthean priority, which says that Matthew was written first, and then um, Mark summarizes Matthew, and then Luke summarizes part of Matthew but then adds his own stuff to it. So there's, there's all these different theories about that. And um, this, this quote-unquote problem, it came out of what's called, uh, again, just so you're kind of aware of these things in case you go researching online or something, comes out of what's called higher criticism, which is a field of New Testament study and academia that starts in the... Uh, Start, well, it really starts in like the 50s, but gains a lot of traction in the 60s and 70s. And higher criticism comes out of liberalism. I, I mean that in a technical theological sense. Uh, the liberalism of, of the 70s, 60s, and 70s, which basically wants to say the Bible is not inerrant. In other words, the Bible contains errors. And we're going to try and use scientific methods to figure out what those errors are, right? So really analyzing all the grammar, analyzing the language, analyzing all the uh, manuscript evidence, and and figuring out um, what comes from what, and all, and and what the errors are in the Bible, and what these origin, like what the original originals said. And um, it's a very, in my opinion, a very uh, poor way to approach the scriptures, right? Because it it immediately discounts inspiration, and it seems to be used, in my opinion, by the devil to uh, try and disprove the scriptures. Right? That's really what. Um, so, if that this isn't as raging of a debate as it used to be, because that this was more of a debate when most people in America were Christian, and then the liberals wanted to to disprove the Bible. Liberals today don't care about the Bible at all, so they don't need to disprove it, right? That's already been done in their opinion. But back in the 70s and whatnot, when you had these these theological liberals trying to disprove the Bible, there was a guy named like, um, uh, you might have heard this name before, Bart Ehrman, uh, who was really big into this. Okay. Um, anyway, I don't want to go too far into the rabbit hole because I think it's kind of stupid. But again, if you um, if you do any research online and, and you start to come across this synoptic problem and these comparing the text and everything, this is where it comes from. But all right. Um, yeah, I think so. So just a, a few more words on that. I, I think that this whole question of which gospel was written first and how what's the nature of how they relate to each other. I, I think less and less over time, it, it doesn't matter much. Right. So, I mean, we debated these things in seminary, and um, the thing that I really took away from that was that the gospel that the seminary professor was teaching on, that seminary professor always thought that one was written first <laughs> right? and was the most important. And um, it's like the Mark guys think Mark is written first. Matthew guys think Matthew's written first. The Luke guys want to give an early dating to Luke. Like, it's, I, I mean, it's kind of just arbitrary, right? But I think the the um, 
the point is, so I don't want the fact, here's, here's really the reason I bring this up. I don't want the fact that Matthew contains 97% or 94% or whatever of what Mark says to discourage your faith in any way. And it's, there's a very simple explanation to this is that they saw and are witnessing to the same events, right? That's the first thing is that we're going to talk about Peter in a second, Peter's relationship with Mark, but Matthew and Peter are witnessing to the same events of Jesus Christ. And also, it doesn't take away from inspiration to recognize that maybe they this was somewhat of a collective project, right? That they did kind of uh, go, go off of one another, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they did work with one another. They all knew each other, right? We know this in the, from the scriptures. They're all hanging around together. Um, that they probably had access to each other's gospels and there probably was some comparing of notes, right? And I almost think it's a really modern problem because like, wait, so copyright... Copyright didn't used to exist, right? Like, I mean, this is a very modern thing, but all truth is God's truth, right? And if someone says something that's true, like, I, they don't own that. God owns that, right? And if, especially with the scriptures, the scriptures are inspired. That's why I hate it when I, I think Bible publishing companies should not copyright their translations. Like, I think donors would pay for translators to get paid, but... The, this whole thing of like you're not allowed to use a translation of the scriptures because someone has it under copyright. That's just that's completely antithetical to the Christian worldview. Like the scriptures are for the preaching of the gospel, right? They're for the distribution of 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 the of the grace. So anyway, that's a side point. Um, well, never mind, I won't I won't go there. Uh, but. Uh, Anyway, my point is, back to the synoptic problem, that's not really a problem, is that, I, yeah, I think they work together. I think Matthew and Mark had access to each other's gospels, right? Um, but I don't think that takes away from the inspiration. Um, the other thing is that they have, they're using the same core uh, witness that they have, right? Oh, and that's the other thing about the synoptic problem, by the way, if you've ever, if you do research online, this is completely bogus and made up, but there's um, uh you might see something called the Q document floating around, this theory about the Q document, which is this whole other theory that there's a source, there's this source document that we don't have access to that like is, it's lost in history or whatever. But it, this is also like history channel stuff. If you ever see stuff on the history channel about the Bible, just don't watch it. But um, I mean, if you do and you do watch it, you should be aware that they'll say that there's like this, this ancient Q document, which is the source of the gospel right the synoptic gospel writers gospels right um so that's i mean there's no evidence for that like i don't and i don't know why we're supposed to believe that but whatever um some brainiac in an ivory tower came up with it so now i got to change my life or something i don't know um anyway the, the other thing about it is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have different audiences that they're writing to. So we're going to talk about how Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, a Roman audience. Matthew writes to a more Jewish audience, right? Um, they also have different styles, right? So um, it's actually a blessing to have these four different Gospels because they all contribute something to the Scriptures that are unique to, to one another, right? And I... I God preserves his word throughout history. God gave, passed down this word to us in history. I don't think God would have given us these four different gospels if they weren't all beneficial, right? And so I actually like that we're studying Mark because, um, because Mark is kind of neglected because of this whole, well, you can just read Matthew or you can just read Luke idea. But um, I, I'm interested to see what we find that is unique to Mark and the style that's unique to Mark and what that gives to the scriptures, because it obviously gives something, right? God wouldn't have given us Mark if it wasn't valuable. So, all right, that's my spiel on, on the synoptics and all that. All right. Um, as far as dating goes, um, again, yeah, go ahead. Quick question. Is, is there a 
this. Is, is, is there been some analysis on what exactly that unique content is? Because it'd be interesting to see why did why did Mark not include that, and what what is it that these other people are felt like? Was oh yeah. Yeah. So if you want to dig into that, I mean, you can find charts online that are pretty good. Um, if you want to dig into that, you can buy what's called, this was a tool developed for higher criticism, but it is kind of interesting. Uh, you can buy what's called a gospel synopsis. And what it does is it has um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in four columns. And it tries to put that somewhat in chronological order and it'll be like okay Matthew writes this here which is similar to what Mark writes here but Luke doesn't include that and John doesn't include that but then Matthew and Luke have this section here and then oh John has something that fits in here and then it's uh you know Mark and Luke have something together here and it, it lines everything up in four columns and you can compare. So that's called a synopsis. You can also get, um, which the higher critics hate this because they're like, uh, their idea is that these things are meant to be separate and compared. Uh, but you can also get what's called a, uh, a harmony, which is the opposite of that, basically. And it smashes all the gospels together into one into one text right so the stuff that overlaps obviously will only be there once but then the stuff that's unique from all the different gospels will be um mixed in and um traditionally lutherans and i've thought about doing this um although i see the danger with the harmony is that you do actually lose the uniqueness of each gospel right that's the danger of the harmony but uh, traditionally on um, Passion Sunday, Lutherans would read a harmony of the passions, where it's uh, a collection of the, all the different passion accounts from all four gospels, um, but smashed into kind of one text. So um, I th I, what I've done the last you know, three years or whatever um, is I, th I think on Passion Sunday, we read Matthew, and then on... Um, Good Friday and uh, let's see on Monday Thursday and Good Friday we read John and then John's account of the resurrection on Easter vigil and then Mark's account of the resurrection on Easter Sunday so we get most of them we just don't get a lot of Luke but the other traditional thing you can do during Holy Week is if you have a service every day during Holy Week, which is a kind of traditional thing to do, you can read all four Passion accounts on, di on the different days. So you can read like Matthew on Sunday, Passion Sunday, and then, and then Mark on Monday and Luke on Tuesday and John on Wednesday, and then you can do whatever you want on Friday. Anyway, that's beside the point. But um, yeah, that's that's hard. You can so you can get a gospel harmony, and you can also get a gospel synopsis. And the I have a synopsis that's got English on one side and Greek on the other, so it's it's pretty nice for for studying these things. But um, okay, yeah, good question. All right, um, you can also find that stuff online probably for free, like on just the on the internet. All right, what was I gonna say? Okay, dating. Um, yeah, as far as dating goes, I mean, all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics are probably written between 50 and 60. And then John is written as late as 90, I think maybe a little bit earlier than that. But um, I think it's pointless to try and figure out what order they were written in because it's like there's just not clear evidence. And um, yeah, anyway. All right, so that's, that's the Gospel stuff. Now let's introduce Mark himself. So, any any more questions on the gospel stuff? Right. I'm not hearing anything. I, I can't see hands. Also, if I don't hear you today, um, if I'm facing the wrong direction, there's I got fluid behind my left ear. I don't know how. I just do, and uh, I can't hear out of my left ear right now. So, um, I went to the doctor. And they were like, well, it's not infected, and it's not earwax, so just wait. And I was like, okay, sounds good. 
if it lasts longer than a week, go do an ENT. I was like, all right, I guess I'll wait a week. Um, so that's unfortunate. But I can hear out of my right ear, so we're still okay for now. Um, what are we doing? John Mark. Okay, John Mark That's what we're doing. So John Mark, uh, the author of Mark, we assume so. I mean, there's really no reason not to assume so. Uh, this gospel is always born his name, and John Mark is the Mark that's identified in the gospels and in the epistles. Um, John Mark is the author of the gospel of Mark, and the traditional understanding of this, which I hold to, and we'll go to the evidence here in just a minute, is that John Mark is the scribe of Peter. That basically what Mark does is he takes the testimony of Peter, who was an eyewitness, Simon Peter, obviously um, one of the one of the 12, Peter, and really one of the main of the 12, if not the main guy. I mean, Peter, when you read the Gospels, Peter is kind of the first among equals. I mean, you got Peter, James, and John, um, who are the kind of first three among equals, but Peter especially, Simon Peter, I mean, he's kind of the guy at the forefront of everything, um, it seems. So we'll, we'll see that as we go through the book. All right, so Peter, um, the first evidence for this is, we'll go Bible first, First uh, Peter 3, no, sorry, First Peter 5, 13. I don't know what I said, 3, 4. First Peter 5, 13. Uh, Peter calls, this is just kind of a throwaway line, but he uses the phrase, my son Mark. Right? So he calls Mark his son, which is a kind of weird thing to say unless you have a very close relationship with someone. So it seems like Peter was some sort of mentor uh, the, only, the thing that's similar to this is when Paul says to the Corinthians, I became your father in the gospel. Right? So it's uh, like this kind of mentor relationship. We're actually going to talk about this in the sermon today about uh, imitation and the way Paul talks about that. But um, there's definitely some sort of very close relationship between Peter and Mark. All right. The uh, next uh, evidence is all extra biblical, but it's very, very good evidence. So I'm not going to write all this down, but I'll read these to you. So the first guy who uh, identifies Mark as the scribe of Peter writes his first writings date around 60 AD, um, all the way up to uh, like 130 AD. So this is in the time when the Gospels are written, like very, very soon after. And this guy's name is Bishop Papias of Hierapolis, Papias of Hierapolis. And uh, so one, a very early Christian bishop, one of the first early Christian bishops. And um, the first line in this quote I'm going to read you is very telling. It's, he says, the elders used to say this, right? So this is a guy writing, you know, potentially around like 100 AD saying, this is, this is the old tradition, Right? that Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. Okay? So Papias of Hierapolis says the old tradition, right? And he's writing really early on in the church, is that Mark became Peter's interpreter and uh, wrote accurately all he remembered. Irenaeus, who is a disciple of Polycarp, who Polycarp is a disciple of John, Polycarp's one of the early Christian martyrs. Um, Irenaeus writes around 150 AD. Uh, so this is a tradition probably passed down from, Paul, from John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. Matthew composed his gospel among the Hebrews in their own language. right? So um, that, again, like I mentioned earlier, Matthew wrote to, mainly to Jews. While Peter and Paul proclaimed the gospel in Rome, and founded the community. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, handed on his preaching to us in written form. Right, so Mark is identified as the disciple and interpreter of Peter. And the Rome thing is important, too, because Mark is a Roman name. It's a Latin name, right? Marcus or Marcus. 
And um, just in, in case you're curious, Marcus, we named Marcus Marcus because all our kids have a Bible name, and we like Mark. Um, but I learned Latin when I was on Vicarage, which is the year we had Marcus. So we gave him the Latin version of the name. So, um, yeah, uh, Mark, but anyway, Mark is a, probably a Roman, right? He's a, and he writes to, kind of like he writes to Gentiles. He has an emphasis on, on Gentiles and his gospel, which we'll get to, okay? So those, th- uh, those two are probably the best um, two attestations to this idea that Mark is the scribe of Peter. But then um, it, it's hard to tell, you know, if the rest of these are just um, repeating what here, uh, what uh, Papias and Irenaeus say, or if they're got their own witnesses somehow. But you have Justin Martyr in 150 A.D., Clement of Alexandria around 175 A.D., and Tertullian around 200 A.D. Um, and then the list just goes on and on after that. Basically. Everyone else in church history for the rest of time believes, for the most part, that Mark is the scribe of Peter, right? But for the first 200 years especially, you have plenty of witnesses saying Mark was the scribe of Peter, right? This is the tradition that was passed on. So whether or not that's like 100% true, um, like, I mean, it's not in the Bible. So I guess we we can't say you have to believe that Mark was the scribe of Peter, but Seems pretty clear that Mark was the scribe of Peter, right? Um, all right. Other things about John Mark, uh, Colossians 4.10. Um, we'll give a couple different biblical references here. Uh, Colossians 4.10 shows that he was kind of around all the apostles, right? He's a co-worker of Paul and interestingly also a uh, the cousin to Barnabas. So... Barnabas is another one of these important characters in the early church mission. Um, he's a cousin of Barnabas, right? So he's been around. Um, and he's apparently very helpful, right? Because um, while he's Peter's scribe and Peter's disciple, uh, this is what Paul says about him in uh, 2 Timothy 4.11, is that Paul wants Mark to come with him because he's very helpful for ministry. Right? So he's obviously good at especially talking to Gentiles, it seems. All right, in Acts 12, we find out that, um, Acts 12, 12, we find out that the early Christians also met at times at Mark's mother's house, whose name was Mary, and this is probably how he's a cousin to Barnabas. Um, there's no real evidence that this Mary is one of the different Marys in the Gospels, uh, that we can tell. Um, I mean, it's possible, but Mary is a very common name, obviously, at this time in in that world, in the ancient Near East. So uh, he's got a mother named Mary, but uh, they're they're meeting at her house, right? So she's also a convert or a Christian, all right? Um, and again, we mentioned that Marcus is a Latin Roman name, so um, they're probably... Uh, very early converts. I, I mean, I assume they. There's no reason to think that they didn't convert during the time of Jesus, right? That they were followers of Jesus um, at this time. They may have seen Jesus, right, uh, and part of the crowds and all these things. All right. Any questions on John Mark? Yeah. Yeah, um, I got to think about these, uh, the evidence we have for this, but um, everything I read dates the gospel between 50 and 60 AD. So, I mean, Jesus ascends in 33, and the mission's starting from there. So he's probably, uh, I mean, he's probably under the tutelage of Peter, right? Kind of traveling around with Peter. But then he also goes off on certain missions with, with Paul and Barnabas. And uh, he is collecting the things that Peter teaches during that time. And then he he writes within that. I mean, yeah, I had a professor in seminary that pointed this out one time that, I mean, I think this is probably true that, and he, he studied the evidence a lot more than I did, 
that the gospels are more like, and this is, this is important when we get to the ending of Mark, which we're obviously not there yet, but that the uh, gospels are really kind of the, a life work of the author, right? It's not like they just sit down and over the course of a, a month or two, uh, just write all this down and com- and and in just like one final complete form, but they're really uh, recalling and collecting. It, it's it's more of this like a, com- a completion of a life work, right? It's something that they've added to over time, and that they've uh, slowly been compiling and, and thinking about, and then throughout the course of the you know these. Say, let's say 20 years or 25 years after Jesus ascends. And maybe even they're, they're writing some stuff down while they're with Jesus, for all we know. Um, but the Spirit's inspiring them and they're compiling these things. And then at some point they're, okay, this is the complete form, right? And I, I'll tell you what I think is going on with, with the ending of Mark. So Mark has this big debate and the long ending of Mark where there's um, the majority of manuscripts in existence have this longer ending of Mark, but then the oldest manuscripts have a shorter ending. And the what I think that is going on there is that Mark probably initially published his gospel, let's say, um, without that longer ending and then maybe wanted to add on to it a little bit later. And that's why there's two different traditions of manuscripts there. So. What, uh, just speculation, but the, you, you think about that, there's that, that split that Paul and Barnabas had over Mark, right? That right. Barnabas said that we can take Paul, so no one's taking that, that dude with us. Right. But then, but then later on, Paul comes around. So I'm just curious, kind of, I'd have to go back and look at all the dates about when all that happened. Could it be. <laughs> Peter said, hey, stop hanging with it, dude. you got to come back. <laughs> you got to finish the gospel. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's possible. Right. It's fun to speculate about these things. Um, so. The probably has an episode on it, right? <laughs> I've never watched. I don't know. So. Um, all right. What am I doing? All right, that's John Mark. All right, let's do uh, some main themes. What time is it? We will get into the text eventually, just maybe not today, but um, that's that's totally fine. It's good to do the introduction stuff. All right, so some main themes of Mark. The first first one is going to be Jesus' authority. Jesus has authority, and um, I'm going to word it this way: authority. As a servant, authority as a servant. So there's this kind of contrasting thing going on where all over the place in Mark, the thing that's very clear about Jesus is that he has a great authority. And the thing that's great about Mark that kind of stylistically that we'll bring up multiple times is that Mark is very action-packed. Right, he's uh, when Mark writes, he's constantly going from one thing to the next. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a second. And the way that Jesus is portrayed is kind of as like a, it's almost like an action movie. Like he's he's very proactive. He's moving places. He's doing great things. Um, it's uh, very like I, I think the best way to put it is like action packed, right? But he has the authority. Um, just within like, especially the first eight chapters, you see this. Um, he has great authority, right? Authority to call disciples, authority over de- the demon and devils, authority to forgive sins. And he uses this word a lot, the, the word authority. Authority over the Sabbath, over, he even has authority over the, the old covenant, over the scriptures, right? The way he uses the scriptures, he shows that he has authority over the scriptures. Um, but that authority is complemented and contrasted by the fact that he's a servant, right? He's not, um, 
he didn't come in great authority to just kind of lord over everybody, but he came with authority to serve, right? And this, there's this climactic verse in chapter 10, verse 45, um, when Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve, right? And, and give my life as a ransom for many. That the cross is always in view with his authority, right? His authority is there as the son of God so that he can die for the forgiveness of sins. That's why he has authority. Now, this is um, connected to this authority then is this idea, and this is the one that is, has been striking me the most and has been most interesting to me, is that he is the son of God. And that sounds like such a simple thing to us because it's like, yeah, of course Jesus is the son of God, right? But this is something I realized uh, just recently, really, in, in uh, reading the Gospels and, in, and in also in some of the stuff we've been doing in Genesis, that the people did not expect, and the disciples, when you read them in the Gospels, they did not expect the Messiah to be the Son of God. They expected the Messiah to be a person, right? They expected the Messiah, um, so like when, when Eve has Cain, right? She's like, this could be the Messiah. When Abraham has Isaac, I think he clearly thinks Isaac is the Messiah, right? They expect the, a, a person to be born out of the tribe of Judah to be the Messiah and to be a great person, maybe even to do miracles, right? But they don't necessarily think he's going to be the son of God incarnate in human flesh. That's kind of a surprise. And, and you can get that in the Old Testament because how many times does the Old Testament refer to God as Father? Does anyone know? It's a fun Bible trivia. Twice. And it's really random. Like once is in Second Chronicles. How many times have you read Second Chronicles? So God as Father is not a huge theme in the Old Testament. It's just not. Now, I mean, the God is triune in the Old Testament. I mean, I think that's that's very true. But um, I I think that the disciples are surprised when they find out that Jesus is the Son of God, and I don't think they really get it until the resurrection. Like they kind of do, and they start to get it, but they're still skeptical. Like um, so, Peter, uh, this is in Matthew, but Peter on the mountain in Matthew 16 uh, says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And this is the great confession of Peter, right? But then Peter's so fickle about it, right? Peter, like a little bit later has to be told by Jesus, get behind me, Satan, right? And then he denies Jesus, uh, you know, in his passion. So he gets it, but he, you know, he doesn't like live by it, right? Um, But I think that, this is the profound thing about what happens in the Gospels is we find out that the identity of the Messiah is God's own son, right? And it makes so much more sense when you find out about it that the Lord is our righteousness, right? That the, that the Messiah is the righteousness of God because he is God. But this is something that I think most people are surprised by in the New Testament, and um, it's something that Mark emphasizes in his gospel, right? Because how does he have authority? Because he's the son of the father. That's why he has the authority he has to forgive sins. All right, so we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there, right? Um, and then with that son of God, right, we have the authority thing. Um, the uh, two big markers, time markers, if you will, in the ministry of Jesus for Mark, and this is, we'll get to this in chapter one, the way he starts his ministry are Jesus' baptism and transfiguration. And the baptism and transfiguration, um, this is where we find out clearly that Jesus is the Son of God, right? So, and how do we find that out? Because the voice of the Father comes out of heaven and says, this is my Son, right? Can't get any clearer than that. That's a pretty good indication that this is the Son of God, right? when God says, this is my Son. Um, so the baptism and transfiguration are, are very important in Mark. All right.
The, uh, the next theme I want to talk about is, uh, again, this kind of action-packed thing. What's... Okay, so I'm try and get through these themes relatively quickly. Um, so this is the theme of what I'm just going to call immediately. Immediately. And this, uh, the, this is the theme because this word is used constantly in Mark. It's used like 35 times, right? And this is one of the things that's pretty unique to Mark is this kind of action-packed idea that he's constantly saying, immediately Jesus went and did this. Jesus healed this person immediately. Right? Then Jesus went here immediately and did this other thing immediately. Right? So he's constantly got this sense of urgency. Right? Um, and it's this focus on what's done, right? not what's said. So that this is uh, John, for instance, in a completely different, to give a completely different contrast to this, what does John care about? He cares about the words of Jesus, right? Like he gives these chapters and chapters long quotations of what Jesus' preaching was, right? And even Matthew to some degree too um, gives this pretty big focus on on like the, the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, right? That's, uh, that's Matthew. But uh, Mark cares about what Jesus is doing, right? He does not really care so much about what Jesus says. And uh, this is very interesting. I, this is why I tell people to, um, when people who are like brand new to Christianity ask me, what, what book of the Bible should I read first? I tell them read Mark and then read Romans and then you can go back and read Genesis. All right. And my thinking behind that, maybe I'm wrong, but my thinking behind that is that Kind of going back to what I said earlier, the Gospels being the center of the Scriptures. Um, if someone's new to Christianity, they got to find out who Jesus is, right? That's, I mean, that's the, that's the important thing, right? Um, now, creation and and the understanding of God as Creator, that's very important too. So it's kind of hard, right? Um, and then the understanding of salvation, which is really explicitly explained very clearly in Romans. That's why I go to Romans. Uh, those are all very important, but I think Mark is great because it's it's again it's like an action movie, right? So it's like read Mark and tell me what you think about Jesus. It's exciting, right? And then and then read Romans and find out how Jesus like if you're kind of more of a brainiac type person, you can think about okay, or, the, or even like not even a brainiac, just like a more like logical engineer type person, then um, you can see okay, this is how salvation works. This is kind of the doctrine. Of the church, and then you can go back uh, into Genesis and, and read about creation, right? And and figure out about this, the promises that are attached to Jesus in the Old Testament, right? So that's that's my thinking behind that. I don't know if that's right or wrong, um, but uh, I, I think there's a truth in that. That those are the best three books to start with. But I do I do tell people to start with Mark. So all right, um, the next theme. Try and get through these really quickly. Is that the Gentiles? That this is a book to the Romans, a book to the Gentiles. Uh, Mark himself is probably a converted Roman, right? We already said that, and um, so it's very distinct from like Matthew. Matthew starts with a genealogy because Matthew's writing to the ethnic Jews, who this is showing the promised line, right? But Mark is writing to Romans who don't care about, they've never read the Old Testament, right? So it's not like a big deal as to that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's just not as big of a deal to Romans. This is also, that's going back to what I just said, right? That's not a reason I tell new Christians like that they don't need to start with the Old Testament because in one sense, the Old Testament doesn't, the Old Testament matters once you find out who Jesus is and then you, it's like, okay, then the, you know, anyway. Um, but He's writing to the Romans, so he doesn't start with this genealogy bit. Um, he gets right into the action. Um, he doesn't even include Jesus' birth, which we'll talk about. Uh, but then, uh, like, even if you look at his passion, right, who's the, who's the person who finally recognizes Jesus as the Son of God ultimately at his crucifixion? It's not one of the disciples in Mark. Mark is the only one who has this, I believe. Who's the, who's the guy who, sent, who recognizes, who says, truly this was the Son of God? 
Roman centurion, right? And uh, so I, I think he's showing this Roman faith, right, if you will. All right. Um, a smaller theme, I'm not even going to write it on the board, is Jesus as man. So they're kind of going back to that servant thing. The son of God is really important, but uh, Mark does have a certain emphasis, not as much as Luke, but Mark does have a certain emphasis on the fact that Jesus was a man who had feelings, right? He In Mark, he's going off in quiet prayer a lot. Um, he gets frustrated. He gets angry, right? These types of things. So um, a lot of that stuff is in Mark as well. Um, but that kind of goes to this meekness or servant idea as well, All right? And uh, the final theme I'll leave you with um, before we close today is it's not really a theme, but like when you read Mark, I think what you really come away with is this, it's kind of begging the question for you. Like, what do you think about this man? What do you think about Jesus? Mark does not include almost any commentary of his own on the life of Jesus. It's all action, right? It's all descriptive of, of Jesus' life. Um, that's not necessarily true with the other gospel writers. Um, Mark, this, this, uh, Mark includes one comment at the beginning where he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes right into the story, and that's all. And especially with like the Roman centurion and the, um, at the resurrection when the women run away in fear, there's this, it, it feels to me like there's this begging the question of the reader, what do you think about Jesus? Do you think he was the son of God? Do you believe he rose from the dead? All right? And, and so I kind of like that about Mark as well. All right, we'll end there. Next week, we will pick up on a uh, very general outline, just a three-part outline of Mark's gospel, just so you kind of have a placeholders in your mind. And then we'll get right into chapter one next week. All right, any final questions, comments? All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day. We thank and praise you, especially for giving us the Gospels, the uh, accounts of the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come and died on the cross for our sins and uh, was raised from the dead for our justification. We pray that you would always keep this before our eyes, and we thank you for all the good gifts that you continue to send us from that cross and that resurrection today. We pray that you would bless our worship today together. May it be in spirit and in truth. We pray this through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.